a podcast. Did your radio show get canceled? Fire, fire, fire. Low down and filthy, but the discipline is on point. Schooled myself, made my own dojo. A cold flow with the whole dose of soul. Maintain composure, even in fury. An anomaly, properties undiscernible to me. All right, this week on the Million Dollar Plan, I'm Pete the Planner. Uh, we're talking college financial literacy, also known as financial wellness, also known as teaching kids about money so they don't do silly things. Uh, joining me to have this discussion is my friend, uh, my a colleague in many regards, and my partner uh, on a project. His name is Philip Schumann. We call him Phil Schumann, Phil the Schumann. He is the Director of Financial Literacy uh, at Indiana University. Hello, sir. Hey there, Pete. Wait, you're the Director of the Department of Financial Literacy. Just the Director of Financial Literacy. Okay, no one knows. I, I actually know. So Phil is here in the studio. If you want to watch this episode, watch it. PeteThePlanner.tv. Phil, you and I, uh, we, we, we've been working together for a few years. We finally said, let's formalize this and make it big. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we did recently. I'm going to make you talk about it. Go. So we've been working on a project called Money Smarts You uh, for the past, I don't even know how long it's been now. Since October, time. November, yes. somewhere, somewhere in there. Uh, just coming out of the idea that you know college students need to learn how to make good financial decisions, but the way it's kind of been presented to them up until this point has kind of been, hey, here's all the information you need to know all at once. Go nuts. Yeah, that's, that's the weird part about it is, you know, my organization, we teach people about money all the time. And, um, and, and you've been in this business now three years? Five. Five years? Yeah. I'm practically life. an adult in this You're business You're almost now. an adult. It, it, there's this idea that, well, we got to teach kids about money. Let's teach them everything. That's actually a really bad idea. Yeah, I mean, because you're not going to get students to pay attention to stuff that's relevant to seniors when they're freshmen because they're not understanding. They're not to that point where they're starting to think about those decisions. Like, students don't really care about job negotiations when they're freshmen because they haven't had or been presented with that opportunity yet. Yeah, it's weird. It's like to take a sophomore and say, this is how a 401k works. It seems like a good idea, but it's really not. No, I mean, it may be good in theory just in terms of getting them to start thinking about it. But the fact is, like, there are other financial things they need to address first before they start talking about 401ks. So let's back up. Before there was a Department of Financial Literacy at uh, with the 10th largest university in the country, which I use 10th, is that right? I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. It's it's up there. 140,000 students across... 114,000. Well, look, who, who, I'm not good <laughs> with numbers, right? 114,000. Before there was a Department of Financial Literacy, what was the attitude around kids and money? And by kids, I mean students. I mean, really, it's kind of the same that it is, still is now. Like, I mean, money is a pretty taboo topic. It's rare to find an engaging audience, especially between 18 to 22-year-olds, whether you're actively wanting to participate in conversations about money with true. the exception of, hey, how much money am I going to make? Yeah, that's true. And I, I think uh, it became a really big problem when... Um, tuition kept rising yeah. and rising and rising. There's all sorts of statistics about how much education has risen. I think even in front of Congress, some of those statistics have been given incorrectly, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. Um, what was the, was there a crossover point from a year perspective that you think where in 1993 college was rising in such a pace and then student loans couldn't cover it anymore. And all of a sudden we've got a, a disaster. That's a great question. I, 
I don't think there was ever a point. I think it's just started becoming a bigger, bigger news story, probably after 2005, or right. maybe even when the, the recession hit. Like all of a sudden, you know, people were more concerned about their finances and started paying attention more to where their money was going. That, you know, I never thought about that, dude. I never thought about the idea that the recession had something to do with this conversation. You might be right. Let me get through this. Well, there seemed like there was a lot less margin for error when the recession got here. Yeah. You know, people, I think what the general person, uh, consumer, citizen, whatever, breather, mouth breather, doesn't understand <laughs> is that student loans by their nature cannot be, um, uh, you can't bankrupt yourself uh, and get rid of student loans. What am I trying to say? You can't... Uh, student loans aren't uh, forgiven. Forgiven, right. I have no words, <laughs> sir. Uh, so that becomes an issue, right? Because a lot of times if you get yourself into debt trouble, there's a way to get out of trouble by either filing bankruptcy or having your house foreclosed or abandoning the property. Yeah. You can't really abandon your degree and get out of the debt. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Uh, I have heard stories where it is possible to do, but I think uh, for the most part, it's not going to happen. And actually, one of those ways is pretty interesting. Uh, the, the strategic default was through uh, yes. And you and I always debate on how much we talk about this because we don't want to suggest it because it's a horrific idea, but it's interesting. Yeah. Right? Go ahead. God, if I can explain it correctly. I mean, basically, students, in order to prevent themselves from, like, I, I, I discharged guess. Discharged debt. Yeah. That's what I, that's the word discharged. I couldn't think of. Gotcha. I, I, sorry, I just screamed no, discharge. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Very awkward moment on the show's history. <laughs> Guest is talking, I scream discharge. <laughs> sorry. But I mean, like, strategic fault, basically students are just ignoring their payments um, because they know they're not going to be able to afford them. And so they just continue on their lives. They understand that it's going to hurt their credit and stuff like that. But they feel like that is going to be the pros outweigh the cons. The other methodology, which is similar to that, though, too, is to use a credit card to pay tuition payments. Mm -hmm. Thus, the the debt associated with with the education could be dischargeable because you could file bankruptcy on the credit card. Yep. We don't do that. But that's a way some grad students were, were dealing with debt. Um, and it's also during the recession, too, there were working adults who lost their job, couldn't survive. So they decided to go back and, and take out a bunch of student loans by enrolling in a class. Yep. With the thought of, hey, we're just going to have to survive on this. Yeah, I mean, and that's still, it still happens to an extent. Like, I think there are a lot of stories that came out that made it more seem more pre prevalent than it actually was. But that's still a thing, and it's it's amazing that people will do that. And it's amazing how they, you know, can use the system in order to, I guess, temporarily financially benefit themselves. So uh, this whole episode, what we're talking about, uh, we're a few more minutes here here in our first segment, but the rest of the show, we're going to talk about some of the big mistakes college students make, mm -hmm. some of the huge mistakes parents make. Uh, I think that's a big part of our messaging with Money Smart to You is that by parents not having these difficult conversations because they're trying to protect th their kids from tough moments, I don't know, <laughs> they make the problem so much worse. Yeah. And that's tough, right? Because at some point in time, we're looking at people and saying, oh, hey, by the way, you're doing this wrong. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the first course, you know, when we started building this first, the first course we built or the first course we talked about was the high school course. Yeah. And one of the things we put out there is here's how you can have conversations with your kids or here's how the kids can have conversations with their parents to make sure they've got, you know, basically everything figured out once they start funding college. All right. So Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy at Indiana University, uh, we'll be back uh, after the break. We're going to talk more about mistakes uh, 
college students make, their parents make as they try to fund their college education. Uh, tuition rates continue to go up. Some schools are freezing them. Some schools are creating financial literacy programs. Some schools are creating a ways to invest in a student and take their career earnings. It's confusing, but that's why we're here. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Pete the Planner. Stop what you're doing. And hit Pete up on Twitter at Pete the Planner. Question the right of any man to voice his opinion as strongly as any can. But then again, many men are citizens of their own little world, so they ain't really fitting in. I'm in the background blending in, camouflaged by the scenery, but I'm a champion. Revamp the camp again, put down the stamp again, talk to my fans again. We're back on the Pete the Planner Show, the Million Dollar Planner. I don't know what we call this thing. I'm Peter, and it's a show that I'm on. Thanks for listening. Talking uh, college and money and paying for college with money. Uh, Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy at Indiana University, joins me now. Phil, so Phil and I, our organizations entered into a partnership, a public-private partnership, if you will, mm-hmm. to try to combat this issue. So we've built Money Smarts U. It's an online digital learning platform for IU students, and then we're distributing it to other colleges and universities across the country. After it's all said and done, dude, there'll be 21 hours worth of courses on there. Uh, this year, there'll be seven hours worth of courses, and we just wrapped season one, the, yeah. the the shoot, as they call it in the biz. That was a long few months shooting those videos. It was probably easier for me than it was for you, because, I mean, you're the one that has to spew out all the information. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, look, I mean, it's uh, it's good, though, because I think it's such a horrific topic. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the challenge. You were talking about that in the first segment here today, is that... You're asking 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds to care about something so heinous and, and uh, disturbing in the moment in their life in which they're told they're supposed to be having the best time of their life. Yep. Those two things don't add up. No, they don't. And so you see students choosing like to just ignore it and just to have a good time. And you see some students that prevent themselves from having a good time and trying to be as financially sound as possible. And really, like part of the reason for Money Smart 2 is we want it to fall somewhere in, beto- in between. Yeah, so you guys did something in the last few years involving letting students actually know their student loan balances yeah. as they went to borrow more money. Yeah. And, and tell us about the impact of that, because I find that to be like one of the biggest no-brainers ever, yet it didn't exist until you did it. Yeah, so and it's amazing how much traction it's gotten over the last few years. So uh, back in 2012, we implemented what we just called the debt letter, which basically just tells students, hey, here's how much money you've borrowed up to this point in your academic career. Here's what your interest rate is projected to be or about what it is. And then here's your estimated monthly payment after you graduate. And basically the idea behind it is, well, let's try and make student debt transparent to these students. And then hopefully when they see that number, they might be a little bit alarmed to the point where they start having conversations about, well, do I really want to take this amount of money out or do I want to figure out a different way to fund my college experience? And you saw an immediate impact of that. I mean, you're talking a huge impact. Yeah, so I mean since the and I should say that since the debt letter started and since what I what we deem like I use affordability initiative. Okay. So this is, you know, some of the things we've done with cost of attendance, the debt letter, our financial literacy office, like since those things have been in place and that all started back in 2012, the university has seen a decline of student borrowing by 98.7 million dollars or about 15%. 
So, I, I, okay, so this is a, a slippery slope when it comes to, I'm not going to ask the administration's view mm -hmm. on student borrowing, mm -hmm. but I would guess they want students to be educated. They want them to get their degrees specifically at Indiana University, and they want them to borrow the money it takes to get that done. Yeah. But doesn't this get a little bit weird of saying, we want you to get a, a, an education, even if you don't have money, but don't borrow a bunch of money. And, and I think to some degree, that's why it's taken so long to, to bring these conversations to light because of, of the colleges not wanting to have this conversation. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a couple thoughts about that. Like student loans in of themselves, they're not bad things. I mean, they right. were created to help people get the degree they need in order to, to boost their lives after they graduate. Um, and, I, and that's still what they're there for. Um, but what we've seen over the course of time is in, the, in some cases, like students just take advantage of it or they borrow more, you know, because it, it, it just goes back to the point where if somebody offers you $5,500 or uh, $3,500 and at that point in time, there's no ramification. Yeah. You can just have $5,500 or $3,500. What are you going to do? $5,500. Give a little wiggle room, a yeah. little cushion. Yeah. So you're going to take $5,500 and that's what we've seen. And so that goes back to the debt letter, just saying like, hey, basically we want you to think about what you actually need in school and not what you're actually offered. And if you do that, you'll put yourself in a better position once you graduate. Some of the big mistakes we see on a regular basis uh, range from having a car on campus as a freshman. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of uh, colleges and universities frown upon that for, for different reasons, because they, they, they know if you don't have a car on campus, retention improves. Yep. Um, but from our perspective, the cost of having a car on campus can be astronomical. It's huge. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Like, if, you, if you're a first-year student uh, down in Bloomington, like, basically your car is relegated to the assembly hall or Memorial Stadium parking lots. Right. Which, that doesn't really do you any good. Like, you got to walk all the way out there to get things. And uh, as you learned, as you were walking around campus, and I kind of prove I have a habit of walking everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's faster for me to walk anywhere right. as opposed to going to my car, finding a place to park, and then going inside whatever building I'm in. Um, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with having a car on campus, but I feel like for your first year or two, like get yourself acclimated to the university and kind of stay close to it so you can learn what's there and then you can kind of branch out afterwards. Other big mistakes we see are the waste of the student loan refund. Which is a, it's a byproduct, a student loan refund is a byproduct of how an education is paid for through the, the bursar's, bursar's office? Yeah, I mean, the bursar's office, I mean, basically just, hey, here's the money you get back after we've used your financial aid uh, to pay for everything the university needs. And we're just going to deposit it into your checking account yep. or send you a check. And at that point, Phil, it's raw student loan money yeah. that feels like you just won the lottery. Yeah, and it, like... I remember being back in college. I went to DePaul, um, and this was back with the W. With the W, uh, back before um, you know direct deposit really was a was a big thing, and so I just remember a friend of mine getting a check that was for sixteen hundred dollars in the mail, oh, man. and there's no letter or anything attached to it. It's just hey, here's this check for sixteen hundred dollars. We had a, went out and had a good time because there's no there's no indication of where that money's coming from. And the parents often don't know that's happening. You no, know, my parents had no idea that I I probably got like a hundred or two hundred dollars back. Yeah, they had no idea. And what's crazy about that, and and this is where we're gonna sound like two old guys talking about this, which turns out, Phil, we are. Well, I am. You're not. Uh, uh, let's say you go and buy a cheeseburger, right? You know, oh, it's delicious, and I just bought it with a student loan refund. 
Um, well, now you're going to amateurize that cheeseburger over 10 to 25 years, and that's a really expensive cheeseburger. Yeah, I mean, that's we try and teach students that that's what's in the, what's happening. Basically, you are paying for something over the course of 10 years, um, and it was just a che- like an innocuous cheeseburger that you had on a random Thursday. Isn't it? Uh, I know you feel this way. Like we walk the line when we talk to college students of being a killjoy mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah. I mean, I always am a buzzkill. But when you talk to college students, again, it goes the time of their life. Hey, man, don't you spend your refund check? And they're like, I'm at 19. I don't care. But the ramifications are gigantic. You're talking about delaying buying your first house, delaying getting married, delaying being able to buy a car to move out of your parents' house. And that's a big part of this issue too. Almost 40% of non-students 18 to 34 years old move back in with their mom and dad or or live with their mom and dad still. And so that's an epidemic. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge epidemic. And I mean, obviously there are two two buckets you can fall in there. We do have some students that strategically move back in with your parents to save up money, which is fantastic. We love it. We will encourage that uh, to no end. But yeah, the ones that just graduate and have no plan whatsoever and kind of just mooch off mom and dad for an extended period of time, like that is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, we've got to figure out how to address that. We uh, also, uh, I always say we, but it truly it is you and me. We also believe that students should work up to 15 hours a week while they're in school to pay for their living expenses. And studies show working 15 hours a week actually increases a person's GPA. Yeah, um, we, th- we think that's just because of like the time management piece, that you're learning good skills that are kind of helping you figure out, all right, this is how, I can, how much time I can devote to academics, how much time I can devote to work, make a little bit of money, we're in good shape. Um, but what some of the research shows too is that you know, if you work more than 20 hours per week, your GPA is likely to decline and you're, uh, it's going to take you longer to graduate, which every year, the longer you're in school, you know, you're going to be paying more money. Uh, and so we see that. So we try and encourage students to work 10 to 15 hours a week. But the research also shows that 40% of students are investigating working more hours because they feel financially stressed. Yeah. And so that's a huge problem. We've well, got to tell students, like, you are trying to apply a Band-Aid to this problem, which is not going to help you. Like, honest, honestly, if push comes to shove, I'd rather you take out a little bit more in student loans, get your degree in as quickly as you possibly can, get out, and then start making the, we'll call it relative big bucks. Yeah, relative is an important word there. I think our worst case scenario and our nightmare that we try to avoid and help students avoid is when a student is so stressed financially, whether it's self-induced or, or involuntarily feeling uh, stressed, that um, they drop out. Yeah. They say, I can't do this. And so they have an unfinished degree with a ton of student loan debt, and it is uh, unrecoverable in many instances. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is, that is a huge problem. Um, you know, what we've seen a lot of universities do, which I think is great, is they've started opening up different, like, different programs for these types of students to keep them involved with the university and help them out. Um, like uh, uh, there's a community college over in Ohio that has uh, put together a program that helps students apply for like community benefits or community assistance. Um, and they do that through like trained students that help them apply for these things. So that way if students are feeling stressed because they can't afford like food or they've got a, a child and they need help looking after it, like they have, uh, they have uh, they've put them in touch with uh, community agencies to help them pay for that stuff because they don't want them to leave because obviously the worst, the worst situation you can be in 
is graduating or having student debt and not graduating as opposed to having student debt and graduating. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to take a break and we come back after the break. We are going to talk about how this impacts parents. Uh, sort of the forgotten entity of all of uh, college education is the impact on a parent's finances. And what we found and what we're trying to fix is uh, the impact of Parent PLUS loans uh, on, on someone who's trying to retire in a couple years. So we'll talk about that when we're back right here in the Million Dollar Plan. I'm Pete the Planner. Kinetic, Rusty Redenbacher, ATFU, Naptown, yeah. Cashing in like the end of the game at the casino. I lean so the glare of the rear view don't hit me. Swiftly through the avenues and boulevards. Old soul playing on my speakers. Old soul but young and age of boss player. Not from the Himalayas, but my fam gave me Gary Indiana game. Grew up around the country, but the mindset was there. Ain't I won't complain about a damn thing on this beat. Axe got it slapping. Glass house, keep it funky. Work to the jams, drums clicking, clapping, grooving. This is the rhetoric when I'm in all right, former presidential candidate, and by candidate I mean he didn't make it through the Democratic uh, primary, Martin O'Malley has over $339,000 in Parent PLUS loans. I mean, he borrowed money for his daughter's education, uh, and after they capped out the amount of student loan that they could take, Vice President Pence has six figures of student loan debt on his kids. And I would say when two people of that ilk have that much student loan debt, for their kids, we got a problem. Phil Schumann's back, Director of Financial Literacy at uh, Indiana University. You're, you know, your title's really not too long. It's it's good. It's no, the it, right length. It's not bad. I like it. It's better than some of the previous titles that I've had. <laughs> yeah, or what people call you. Uh, that's true, um, too. So I, I have to think, if, if, if a student doesn't understand the impact of a student loan refund and how that can hurt them, I, I'm convinced, and you can't convince me otherwise, although you feel free to try, Parents have no clue on how much Parent PLUS loans are going to impact them negatively uh, for the rest of their life. I think we'll say the majority of parents do. Okay. There, are, there are a couple out there. Can we go with vast majority? I would be okay with that. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Um, and we've, gotten, we've had some stories over the last few years of interesting things that parents have done um, to negatively affect their future for the benefit of their children's. Which is a, is a noble thing, and if a parent does that, like I will never like say they're a bad person. That's a great thing for them to yeah. do, or it's a very nice thing for them to do. But the reality is, and I know you're big on you know funding retirement and getting ready for retirement, like you are sacrificing your retirement for something where your student or your you know your child will be able to to pay it back, even if it takes 40, 50 years. Like that's okay, yeah. or at least that's better than you sacrificing yourself uh, or sacrificing your retirement. Because when you run out of money in retirement, who do you turn to? Your kids. Right. And, and so if they have no money. Yeah. And so if they're not in a good position to help you out, then this is just all bad I, news. I think a lot of it is there's this, uh, people think 
just because you maybe went, not you, one, not you, one went to school in the 1970s or 80s and you bootstrapped your education and you worked your way through school and you paid for it yourself. And that's the same experience you want your kids or grandkids to have. That's cute. But it just doesn't work that way. No. You just can't do that. So if you want to make a kid have a be all on them, here's your choices. You can either pre-fund a bit of their education so that the math will work. Or or the second thing you can do is uh, make sure they're going to school cheap enough that they can afford tuition. Yeah, I mean the pre, the pre-funding thing is huge. And I, I can't remember if we talked about this before, like or we're probably. Texas, but I mean, oh, I mean, I know we've talked about it, but I can't remember the numbers that we always use is, um, you know, if you between zero and eighteen, you pre-fund forty thousand yep. dollars worth of education, you know, it'll be worth eighty thousand dollars by the time the kid goes to college. Right. Perfect. So you can fund eighty thousand dollars of college for forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, or if you take out loans, it's going to cost you ninety-seven thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. Simple math, I would rather pay $40,000 for $80,000 than $97,000 for $80,000. I think the another interesting part of that same idea, especially as it relates to parents funding an education with loans themselves, um, let's say we've got a scenario, uh, and this sounds super judgmental, but I always almost sound super judgmental. I think you're allowed, though. Let's say you got a student who you did not pre-fund their education. You want your kid to go to school. You did not pre-fund any of it. You have no money. Uh, and so your kid has to borrow. Your kid caps out at the amount of student loans they can take out by law, so then now you step in and borrow on their behalf. Well, let's say the same sort of entity that would create a situation with no prefunding, the same sort of parent and personality would have no prefunding, conceivably could also have poor credit. And if they have poor credit, then those parent plus loans aren't going to be at 6%. They're going to be at 11%. No, they'll be they'll be closer because since they're federally like federally protected or whatever, it's when you get into the private loans that I think things get a little bit more dicey. There, absolutely. So I misspoke. So that's what I meant. On the private loans, they're going to they range based on your credit, mm-hmm. and so that creates a lot of issues because you have one person who uh, thinks, well, we'll just we'll just borrow and figure it out later, but because of their mentality, because of their credit, uh, they're in trouble. Thanks for. Yeah, well, I don't want to having my back there. I don't want to get that information out there. I mean, because when push comes to shove, we'd rather a parent take out a plus loan as opposed to a private loan. But the situation or the reality of the situation is, we'd rather you not do either. Yeah, and that's where that's where this gets almost controversial, right? Because we're saying, well, we don't want you to borrow too much. We don't want parents to borrow. We don't want kids to go too expensive a school. And then people say. Well, what are we supposed to do? Go to a community college? And then, and, and I don't say that disparagingly, but that's the feedback we get. It's like, hey, take it easy. And, 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 and to some degree, Phil, the least expensive schools are those more community college-based schools or mm-hmm. even a, what do you call your satellite campuses or alternate campuses? I mean, what do you call on your other campus? Fry you the, the regional campuses. Regional campuses. I knew there was a term. Okay. I mean, but they're less expensive. They're less expensive. And realistically, yeah, there are some programs that are better, but they are just as good. And there was actually, I can't believe I'm going to say this on a, on a thing that's broadcast the world, there was a great study that was done in part by Purdue uh, <laughs> a, co- a couple of years ago that basically said that, you know, with the, with the exception of a few, a few schools, like where you go to college doesn't matter. Like it matters what opportunities you create for yourself. Like, and that's the important thing. So we, you know, we've got students that are coming from out of state for, I mean, realistically no reason other than they really want to be Hoosiers, which is fantastic. Um, but we, you know, if you were like, if you grew up an hour away from the University of Illinois and you have the opportunity to go there, Illinois is a fantastic school as well. 
like, and this is part of the whole money smart you thing here, is it's not necessarily to try and push people to come to Indiana University. We'd love to have you. Bloomington's a phenomenal town. You know, the rest of the campus that we have throughout the system are fantastic too. But really, we want people to make good financial decisions because if people are making good financial decisions, that's better for the entire economy. All right. So I'm again, I'm going to ask you a question that makes you feel like I'm going to make you speak for the administration. But from my understanding, mm -hmm. that if an out-of-state student comes to a university, the margin mm -hmm. on that student is much higher mm -hmm. for the university itself. Mm -hmm. Yet we want students to make good financial decisions. So how in the world, collectively as a university, do you get your head around the idea of we want people to make good decisions, but by the way, if you're prone to make bad decisions only on finances, we'll take that extra margin. Yeah, so I can pretty much just kind of pass this question along and just say, like, <laughs> I'm not administration. My job is to teach people to make good financial decisions. Uh, I'm not going to have a 100% success rate. Yeah. And so we will have students that will come in from out of state, which is fantastic, and we love the diversity that it brings to the right. university. Um, but, you know, for those students that are in-state, we really want them to make good decisions because, obviously, we really care about the Indiana economy, and we want to make sure that it's uh, that those that are involved here are making really good decisions that don't hurt them later on in life. What's the difference? What's the difference in cost at IU Bloomington for out of state? Boy, you're putting me on the spot with this one. I, it's like ten grand difference. The the, the in-state when you look at the cost of attendance, I I know this number off the top of my head. It's twenty four thousand eight hundred eight dollars in Bloomington. Okay. Um, in-state. In-state. Out of state, I want to say it's somewhere in in the like around forty. Okay, so we're talking about a hundred thousand dollar four year education versus a hundred and sixty thousand dollar four year mm -hmm. education. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean... It's a 60% difference. I did that math myself. It's a huge difference. Um, for the in-state students, like one of the messages we always we always promote to them is that if you look at the cost of attendance, you know, everybody's up in arms about tuition getting higher, which will not discount that ever. Like that yeah. is a thing, and that's something that universities are trying to fix. Um, but if you look at it, like there are five buckets for cost of attendance. There's tuition fees, room and board, uh, books and supplies, personal and transportation. Um, tuition and fees makes up about 42% okay. of Indiana, uh, of going to Indiana University's costs, which means that room and board, books and supplies, personal and transportation, AKA, things that you can control right, totally. to a certain extent. Like, you control 58% of the cost of your college, so if you make good decisions, yeah, that tuition is going to be there, but then you can lower the rest of those costs and get yourself a degree for cheaper um, than that $24,000 that's being thrown out there. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with one more segment with uh, Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy at Indiana University. You're listening to The Million Dollar Plan. I'm Pete the Planner. Every day living through the peace of my soul, I remain whole even in the middle of the pain. Even though my life has the rain, I still remain sane, writing and creating for my life. And my pen is my sword given by the Lord, and I use it to fight the tides of restriction. Sometimes I'm conflicted by myself looking at the trees too much and can't see the forest. Enemies shall inherit the earth, and I want to inherit something, something other than the high blood pressure and diabetes. So work is what I got to do. Stay true to my enemy and water the trees that I sing from and look out for the lumberjacks. Running with the gale force wind at my back. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. This lays great errors to rest. Let me remain calm. Until 
We're back on the Million Dollar Plan on Pete the Planner. Joined by Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy, Indiana University. Special Money in College Edition? Sure. That's it feels special. we got to do a bomb though. Biggest waste of money of the week. This one is submitted by my producer, Brianna. 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 Brie. Brie. Hey, Brie. Hi. So you bought a screaming goat. Yes. And I'm going to play the goat sound now. I think people just, that's the sound of people turning off the show, Brie. Why did you buy a screaming goat? I just love it so much. <laughs> I was so excited. How much did you pay for this? I spent $10 on it. Brie. Yeah. This seems like a big waste of money. This is what you pay me for. I feel like that should just be a Happy Meal toy, right? That's the value of it. It's excellent. Are there screaming goats? Yes. Goats, they do scream sometimes. Like they faint, you know? It's just a thing that goats do. This is, uh, these are the things I don't know. All right, so thanks, uh, Bree, for the screaming goat. Phil, (laughs) aren't you glad you're here? Absolutely. I love being here. All right, Phil, tell us as we wrap uh, this week's show. Tell us about Money Smarts You. What do we do? So Money Smarts You, as you kind of said earlier in the show, like it's all about trying to provide students the information they need to know when they need to know it. Yep. Um, so what we're trying to do is, again, as you said, like we're trying to build 21 hours of content of financial information that goes out to students when they need to know it. Um, it's going to be a digital platform, so any student will be able to log in uh, to their account through the university, assuming their, their university signs up, and learn about information that's relevant to them at that time. So for this first year, you know, we just wrapped up our first round of shooting. Um, we did, uh, we've done uh, courses on high school juniors and seniors, mm-hmm. one on first year students, one's on sophomores, one on juniors, one on seniors, one on uh, those considering grad school, and then one for recent alums. Yeah. So that's, it, it was fun to shoot and it was fun to build the program on that need to know basis. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was authentic in that approach. Because previously, what we found in the financial literacy space for colleges and universities are, hey, you're a freshman. Here's everything you need to know about money through retirement. And yeah. it's like, that's just silly. Yeah. And I mean, and there are a couple programs out there that try and help segment some of the things. But I don't think they do a good job necessarily like directing students where they need to go. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm really excited about what we're doing. Because, you know, basically we're telling students, hey, this is all you need to know for right now. Don't concern yourself with anything else. Then we built a, a score at the end of each module, our, our Money Smarts U score, that basically helps students assess their level of financial habits. Um, you know, because we've seen a lot of students that get obsessed with their credit scores. We wanted to take a step back from that and say, that doesn't matter necessarily. Let's have you focus on the habits that you're going to be building that will help lead to a good financial life after you graduate. Yeah, people love self-assessment. They love quizzes. And what this basically does is it says, uh, are you thinking like a your freshman? Are you thinking like a freshman? Mm-hmm. Cool, good. Or are you a freshman? Are you thinking like a junior in high school? Well, you need to fix that. I mean, that's that's sort of our metric and the basis of understanding of, of which we pass on. But where that gets really interesting is when you have someone about to graduate in their final year of school, but they're still thinking like a freshman. And Phil, we know that's a recipe for disaster. Right, and that's the reason. I mean, that's the reason why we built the scores because basically we wanted to help students, you know, lead them to behavior changes. So if we get that senior that has that freshman level score, 
at least through the scoring system, they can say, okay, if I do this, if I do this and this, I can improve myself and get myself to where I need to be so that I'm a good manager of my finances after I graduate. If for some reason you'd like to learn more, just as a listener, go to moneysmartsu.com. That's moneysmartsu, all one word. And by you, we mean you as in university, not Y-O-U. Yep. We should probably buy moneysmartsyou.com too. Probably a good idea. You're just Bree, can we buy that? Sure. Okay, thanks. Uh, so that's it this week. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. I've seen you so much recently shooting these videos. Uh, I thanks. I know. Like I said earlier, we started my week uh, with you, and I'm ending my week with you. <laughs> well, that's how it should be. Uh, so that's all the time we have this week on uh, The Million Dollar Plan. The, <laughs> the screaming goat. Uh, it's his last appearance here on the show. Uh, we're going to have uh, tacos, I think, with uh, the goat. So. It's a recurring guest. It's not. Yes. I kind of like it, I'm going to be honest. Show. It is a waste of money unless I end up buying it from you. So uh, that's it this week. I'm Pete the Planner. Uh, thanks again to Phil Schumann. Reminding you, as always, I'm seeing good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner. It's a million dollar plan. If you want to be on this podcast and have Pete fix your money right, then hit us up at PeteThePlanner.com slash podcast. You heard me. PeteThePlanner.com slash podcast. Log on. This is for information purposes only. It's not the Swiss financial planning device. Consult a financial divisor. Release from Everest, the fresh is fresh, and you can call me ET or to John Tesh. Let me bless this harmonic presentation. It's amazing, so amazing. I'm the reason. Uh, salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a faraway land. I am the soul controller. Put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, trying can restore your health. I bring you greetings. Uh, Salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it? The tinkling of the keys is an homage to the little, little star. I sojourn over poetic descriptions of sound and travel to my other world. Out of this world, spaceship on my arm took me home, filled by the ink and the megabytes and the hypertext transfer protocol stronger than the Skynet and the Terminator. I push faders into warp speed, glide with ease, creating a breeze they call a black hole, event horizon, no rear view concerns. This I adjourn, and beats I burn, this I adjourn, and beats I burn. Salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a faraway land. I am the soul controller. Put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, try can restore your health. I bring you greetings. Uh, salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it?